0: Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trusilla from NHS Somerset and I'm joined by my friend and colleague. Dr. Peter Bagshaw, also from NHS Somerset. And we're joined by another friend and colleague from NHS Somerset, Dr. Kate Stabley. Welcome, Kate.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Kate we're going to be talking about children's emotional health and neurodiversity today but before we do that tell us a little bit about yourself if you would please and how you come to be doing what you're doing now.
1: Happily so I am originally a GP I've been in Chard in Somerset for quite a long time um, and I've always had an interest in areas outside day-to-day general practice and a few years ago I started in the role of the Associate Clinical Director for Women and Children for Somerset what was then CCG uh, which is the organisation that helps the whole of Somerset decide how they manage health Um, Affairs. And as part of that role, I got involved in setting up the Autism Diagnosis Pathway, um, which came out of a result of a a CQC inspection, which advised us that our pathway wasn't fit for purpose. Um, And as a result of that work that we were doing, looking at the Autism Diagnosis Pathway and working quite closely with my colleagues in um, education and social care, um, it gave me quite a an interest and an insight into the whole idea of neurodiversity and really how it affects all people um, and what we could be doing about it.
2: Brilliant. Kate, can we start with some definitions, please? What What is neurodiversity? What's autism? What's Asperger's? Because there's a a lot of overlap, isn't there?
1: Yeah, very happy. So um, neurodiversity in its broadest sense is the idea that all of us think differently. We all have brains. um, If you want to compare us to computers, for instance, we all have different operating systems. Our brains function in different ways and that gives us um, certain strengths in some areas and also areas that result in difficulties. Um, And historically, the different way we think um, has resulted in difficulties for certain groups of people. One of the groups of people are people who we now define as autistic. Um, So these people have a a specific way of thinking that results in having difficulties within society, depending on which part of their brain works better and which part of their brain doesn't function quite so well. Um, And there are several Sort of definitions for conditions that arise from neurodiversity. So, autism is one of them, uh, ADHD is another one, dyspraxia, dyslexia, Tourette's. There's various uh, what were previously medical diagnoses that refer to these groups of people. Um, yes.
2: Oh, I was just going to uh, say about uh, uh, Asperger's, which is, is, is a term that's kind of fallen out of favour a little bit, isn't it?
1: Yes. I mean, Asperger's was a diagnosis that was used for people who are now seen to be on the autistic spectrum. So they have features of autism. But because they didn't have learning disabilities and because they were able to be seen as slightly more normal in society, um, they were put together in a group called Asperger's and these were people who have social difficulties so they have difficulties interpreting what um, what is socially acceptable, they struggle to, uh, they have very rigid ways of thinking so they're very fixated on the truth or they have um, particular areas that they're they're very, very interested in. So they have special interests in, I mean, train spotters are a good example, a very, very special interest. They can tell you the numbers of trains and what time they're due and things like that. Um, And so that group was historically called Asperger's. It fell out of favour when we discovered that Mr. Asperger wasn't a very nice person um, and worked with the Nazis. And so that term's no longer used. And people who were historically known as having Asperger's syndrome are now just known as being autistic. They're, they're seen as being somewhere on the spectrum.
2: Thank you. That's very clear. And you, you mentioned dyslexia and dyspraxia. I think most people know, have heard of dyslexia, but dy- dyspraxia. Can you just unpack those terms for us?
1: Yeah. So dyspraxia is where your brain finds it harder to coordinate your body, really. So in the past, people would have been known as clumsy children. It's, it's more complicated than that, but it's about your brain having control of your body.
2: And you mentioned the difficulties that some people with autism have, particularly with social interactions, but there can also be positives as well, can't there? I mean, we think of savants and um so there's quite a few famous scientists are thought to have had yes. autism.
1: I mean, there's a very um strong community now of autistic people who are very much pushing forward the advantages of autism. I mean, Elon Musk is often quoted as being a famous autistic person. Um, autistic people are very good at seeing clear patterns and uh, quite often are um, scientific or nerds, um, but more so. Um, so there are great advantages to, uh, to being on the autistic spectrum um, in modern life.
2: And do we have any idea what causes Autism? No,
1: we don't. We always used to think it was a an illness or a condition that had to be treated. Um, and there's various people wanted to blame um, vaccinations and all sorts of other things. But I think the truth is that um, it's probably just related to how your brain works, that some people's brains work differently. And there's certainly a very strong element of inheritance um, in autism. Um, Interestingly, quite a lot of the work around autism was identified when people moved to California to be in Silicon Valley. And where a lot of people who were extremely good at working on computers and understanding the logic behind computer language got together and had children. And many of their children ended up being diagnosed as being autistic. So it it may just be... um, an exaggeration of what is seen in what we call neurotypical people, which are people who don't have a neurodiversity.
0: Thank you ever so much for that uh, um, really uh, overview of the area.
1: Is it rare? Well, I, it's becoming increasingly well recognized. So it's quoted that one in a hundred people are autistic. But as more and more people are sort of exploring the ideas of autism and understanding what it means, there are some parts of America where they think maybe 16 percent of their population are autistic. So I think at the moment we're still distilling what it means to be autistic compared to what it means to be neurotypical, but with a brain that's very logical or um, somebody who is incredibly anxious and thinks in a certain way. Um, So I think with time, we'll demedicalise autism and we will recognise more and more the advantages and normalities of thinking like that. There are, of course, groups of autistic people who really struggle in our modern society, particularly people who have communication difficulties, and that makes it much harder for them to be able to function in our modern society. But it's really important to remember autism is not a learning disability. It is a way of thinking.
2: I think that's a really important distinction because the the two can be blurred. On the subject of prevalence, it's often thought of as being commoner in males, but there's some suggestion that that may just be because we we recognise it more in in males. What what's your view on that?
1: I completely agree with that. I think in the last few years we've seen huge increase in the number of women um, look seeking a, an autism diagnosis, and there are a few high profile. There's a a, a film on. BBC recently about a model who ident- who realized she's autistic and she's got an autistic diagnosis now, and she was sort of exploring, she was in her 30s when she got her diagnosis. She's been exploring why autism in girls is different to autism in men. And they think it's because girls tend to mask their diagnosis. Girls find social interaction so much more important and they will copy their peers and try and appear, to fit in with society so they they're masked and people don't see it um also their obsessive ideas in girls are more socially acceptable so girls having a, an obsessive interest in breeds of a horse is considered quite normal where, whereas boys obsessive interest in naming dinosaurs isn't and yet it's probably the same presentation really
2: and you've touched on a fascinating area about whether we should medicalize it, whether we should think of it as a an illness or just a variant of normality. And a lot of people will press for a diagnosis, but there are no treatments for autism, are there? And so, what what's your view on on that?
1: There is a great push to get autism diagnoses, and um, the autistic community are keen to understand themselves, so they will push for people to be allowed to have an autism diagnosis. But if you get diagnosed with autism, there isn't any treatment that's going to make your life different. Having the label just helps you to explain to other people why you behave the way you behave and and why you do the things that you do. And so what we've been trying as part of our work around the autism diagnosis pathway, what we've been trying to do is to say, can we work harder at meeting the needs of people rather than trying to get a diagnosis and so a lot of the work we've done around the autism diagnosis pathway has been to support people in education and social care to understand what autism is to understand how they can support the needs of autistic people without actually insisting that they have to have a formal diagnosis of autism but it's early days hopefully over the next few years that's this, this will progress and develop because at the moment, although we've got a very good autism diagnosis pathway, it's completely overwhelmed with people who are wanting a diagnosis. And in some parts of the country, the waiting list can be up to four years to get a diagnosis. So we have to do something to support people while they're waiting for their diagnosis. And if we can meet the needs rather than focusing on the importance of getting a diagnosis, we'll be halfway there.
0: It is interesting uh, what you say because meeting the needs is absolutely paramount and diagnosis is helpful, but it doesn't get you the answers. I remember my uh, my record, as it were, for a diagnosis of dyslexia was in uh, a, a consultant doctor who had was holding down the job very well, but had had difficulty getting there, who was 40. And I just said to them, I think you might have dyslexia. And they said, "Oh no, 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 not at all. I said, well we're conversing well but tell me what's going on she's and this person said well i'm actually having to convert all your words into pictures oh, really interesting um so it made things slow so we we've talked a little bit about neurodiversity is there an intersection with emotional health of children or is it another big topic on its own
1: no i mean i think the two so the emotional health of children falls into several categories, doesn't it? Children feel the way they feel for a variety of reasons. Um, those reasons may be their own mental health, so they may have a mental illness. It may be because their brains work in a different way to other people, so they struggle to understand where they are or they may get bullied or it may be that something traumatic has happened to them, they've been neglected or um, they may have experienced some trauma that makes them think in a different way. And it's it's all a spectrum. So nobody sits in one of those categories. Children will have a little bit of everything. And neurodiverse children are much more likely to experience anxiety because the world is not as they perceive it ought to be. They don't understand For example, they don't understand why people have to lie, because to them it's very clear it's either true or it's not. It's very black and white. And so when they live in a world where they experience people lying, it makes them very distressed and anxious and unsure of what they should experience. And there are some studies that suggest up to 75% of children who experience anxiety are actually neurodiverse, and that's why they're experiencing anxiety. So I think there's an overlap with all of that
2: it sounds as though um if people have difficulty with other people lying that the problem is with the uh, the world rather than the individual uh, but if we accept that autism is it can cause problems for people what what is the support that's out there what can people do if they know they've got autism or, or suspect they've got autism
1: um so if So if we start with people who suspect they have autism, it's worth just reading around the area. There's a lot of information out there There are a lot of um, peer support groups for autistic people. So it's worth reading around. Um, If you have a child in Somerset who you believe is autistic, um, we have got the Autism Diagnosis Pathway, which sits within the Somerset local office. So if you go on the Somerset Council website, the local offer for autism diagnosis has resources that will help you understand your child. Um, and if you believe they are autistic, um, certainly if they're at school, go and talk to the teacher, go and talk to the, um, the SENCO at school. That's a special educational needs coordinator at school. Um, and they will, can work with you on the autism diagnosis pathway to see whether or not your child is autistic or whether they have other difficulties. Um, and that's probably the best way to go.
0: We hear, thank you very much, Kate. We hear that um, there is an increasing prevalence of, of anxiety, whether it's pandemic related, whether it's 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 what's happening. Are there skill sets that are useful for people to learn to help manage their anxiety before it becomes overwhelming and 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 perhaps medicalized? How how would we how should we be approaching this?
1: So Managing anxiety is not one of the areas that I'm particularly um, familiar with. Um, I'm I'm more, so my interest more is around neurodiversity and how it causes anxiety rather than how to manage anxiety. Um, But uh, yes, we have seen an awful lot more anxiety. I think our society creates anxiety. It's creating, there's a lot of judgment goes on in our society. And a lot of our children feel that they're being measured against unrealistic expectations. Um so I yes, yeah, so I'm afraid I can't really answer that question, Andrew.
2: I, I can chip in a little bit. Um so we'll put we'll put in the show notes uh resources for people who need help. Um, but we've recently uh launched the Tell Me app, that's T E L L M I, uh specifically for uh children and, and young people. So that's a resource that's available to to anyone uh in Somerset.
1: Actually, the the Tell Me app also has a page specifically for neurodiversity. So if children go onto the Tell Me app and they're questioning whether or not they are neurodiverse or they're autistic or have ADHD, there is actually a page on the Tell Me app which is specifically for them.
2: And if people want to know more about it, we've done a podcast on it, haven't we, Andrew? We
0: have indeed. We have indeed. Tell me. T-E-L-L-M-I.
2: Another condition that we haven't touched on yet, but which is causes a lot of distress is ADHD. Do you want to tell us a bit about that, Case? And again, it it seems to be one of those diagnoses that's increased in recent years.
0: And just to back ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder.
1: That's right. And and this is where people um so very broadly, struggle to concentrate and quite often struggle to stay still. And there's various versions of ADHD. So you can have uh, people who are constantly on the move and there are some people who just find it very easy to be distracted and can't concentrate on things. Um, and this group of people are particularly interesting because the, again, once you've got a diagnosis, there is medication that you can take for ADHD which can improve your concentration Um, and um, it's it's medication that if taken by people who don't have ADHD is often used as a recreational drug so you have to be quite careful about who you prescribe it for Um, and it has to be very carefully monitored if you use it Um, but there are groups of people who say it's completely changed their life, that being on this medication has allowed them to be a successful member of society, whereas before that they were completely distracted, unable to complete a task, unable to sit still in classes. Um, There are other things that can be done to help support people with ADHD, um, but most people are aware of the medication, which is what they're hoping to be able to try.
2: And uh, I believe there's a, a new drug that's from a different class on the horizon for ADHD, which uh, hopefully won't have the the problems that you talk about. Again, it seems as though ADHD is commoner. Do you think that's because it's actually commoner, or because we're recognising it more or looking for it?
1: I think it's a it's a combination of factors. We. I think when we're, we're much more aware of it, um, everybody's much more aware of it, but also as a society, we're much less tolerant of differences. So uh, many, many years ago, in a classroom, you would have had, you know, Johnny who sits at the back and you know he doesn't pay attention and he'll climb on the tables and everybody lets him get on with it. Nowadays, that's no longer tolerated because they have to fit in with the school environment. Um, so I think it's a combination of factors. We also have a society which is much faster and is much more distracting. Um, And we also have a diet which is full of various chemicals and e-numbers which may or may not affect our concentration. So I think it's probably multifactorial. I don't think it's one thing.
0: Certainly good nutrition and the absence of those factors, the the additives good nutrition with b vitamins and omega 3 fatty acids all support brain function and there've been some studies in prisons showing tr- some dramatically different outcomes for people's behavior and trajectories they are better nourished so that's a really big thing thinking about a sort of slightly different aspect of nourishment i'm i'm curious that this was recognized particularly in in silicon valley the the autism but thinking about how anybody's brain functions um nowadays uh, our phones will tell us that we've used our phone for 2 hours screen time a day or 4 hours screen time a day or or for some of us not very much but um it t- is that a factor that influences brain function that changes people's behavior is it something we should be interested in
1: it's certainly something we should be interested in. And there's a lot of uh, information going around about screen time, the appropriate use of screens. And I noticed that there's some advertisements at the moment on I think it's on BBC to say that screen time's good because you can educate children using screen time. So I think there's some very mixed messages um, about screens. Um, it, it, they can be very useful. Um, we do know that the blue light that's emitted by screens is not good for you and it interferes with your sleep cycle. And we do know that um, good sleep is very important for healthy brains and that children with ADHD and with autism, if they, um, sorry, autistic people. People with autistic people would rather be referred to as an autistic person than a person with autism, which is interesting, isn't it? Because it's important it shows that they see themselves selves as autistic. Autism is everything that they are, whereas somebody with a condition sees themselves as a separate individual with an illness. So I think that's quite an interesting comment.
0: That is interesting. And just going back to the sleep, which we were brif- briefly touching on, um, have you got any comments on the sleep needs of adolescents and how habits with with devices can can either challenge that or support that?
1: I certainly, um, from my own experience, I'd say that devices kept out of the bedroom is a much healthier way to get a good night's sleep. Um, We do know that adolescents on the whole have a different sleep cycle to um, adults in that they tend to stay up later at night and then have difficulty waking up in the morning. And we know that that's physiological. That's that's part of how they are. And as a society, we make them all get up early and send them to school. So... There's something a little bit counterintuitive about that. Um, But certainly try and keep screens out of the bedroom. Um, Try and have a set routine at bedtime. Try and get your eight hour sleep or whatever it is your body happens to need. Um, is very important.
2: And if people are interested to find out more, again, we've just recorded a podcast specifically on sleep, um, which is relevant both to, to adults, children and adolescents. And uh, the very strong message uh, from our guest then was uh, bedrooms should be for sleep and cuddles only, nothing else at all. So absolutely reinforcing what you say about uh, trying to take screens out of the bedroom. I was interested, Kate, that you said that we're maybe less tolerant of differences in people now than we have been in the past. I find that surprising and, and very sad, actually. What what do you think lies behind that, and what can we do to change it?
1: I'm not sure. I think social media has a very important part to play in that, um, in that it gives us the opportunity to judge other people's lives from the security of sitting behind a screen. Um, I think that I think the autistic community is doing a lot to try and promote recognizing that different is. Not wrong, it's not bad. Um we've had various we have lots of um efforts to try and support people who are seen as different in the past, haven't we? So campaigns against bullying and things like that. Um I think it is what is a society is really.
2: And they've also helped rather than just describe themselves as autistic and everybody else as normal, they'll use other words for non-autistic people, like neurotypical or I think, alistic, is that another word that's used sometimes?
1: That, that's a term that's used particularly in the autistic community. And I saw a lovely meme on Facebook the other day that said, um, um, I'm, I am I know an alistic person, because they often say, people who know some an autistic person will often say, well, I know an autistic person, therefore I know everything it is to know about autism. And there's a quote out there that says, if you know one autistic person, you know one autistic person. Um, so... Yeah, so I know an analy- analytic person, um, or I know one neurotypical person.
2: I love that saying, and it's something we use also in uh, the areas of learning uh, disability and dementia, where, again, everybody is unique and different, aren't they?
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Um, it sounds as though in Somerset we've come quite a long way from where we were 10 years ago.
1: Yes, there's a lot of work been done, um, particularly around the autism and the ADHD community and how we diagnose in children. Um, we do have services for adults who um, are seeking or, an autism diagnosis, um, but the most of the work has been done recently around children um, and improving our offer in schools and what we call the send offer, which is um, supports children with difficulties in accessing education and that work has been done it's a combination of health and education and social care and that's why it's been so effective it's people working together not in isolation
2: and as a GP I think that was the thing I was most acutely aware of was was desperate parents and children coming forward wanting support and and that I wasn't really able to offer them what they wanted so it's it's great to hear that that's that's changing now Do you think we're nearly there or have we got a long way to go? Oh,
1: I think we've got a long way to go, but I think we're heading the right way. Um, Interestingly, within health, we've all recently been offered the Oliver McGowan training, um, which is around um, autism and around learning disabilities. So there is a hope that the whole health community now will be much more familiar with autism and learning disabilities and there is i understand that pauline mcgowan oliver's mother is now campaigning that everyone in education should also have Oliver mcgowan training so hopefully that will improve things as well
2: and i've been on the uh the days course and it was absolutely fascinating and particularly because it had people with autism and with learning uh disability giving their stories which is absolutely great so and and it's for people working with it, it's actually going to be mandatory, isn't it, rather than just something that is an add-on?
1: It's mandatory for everyone in health, um, unless you're in a role where you really don't have... um, So there's two tiers of training. There's the Tier 1 training, which is mandatory for everyone in health, and then the Tier 2 training, which is mandatory for anyone who has contact with um, patients or is in a managerial position where they make decisions about patients. So I think the only people that don't have to do the tier two training, if I remember right, is the finance team.
0: Delivered very, by a very dynamic team uh, from Autism in Somerset, including Alan, who's, uh, who was a great presenter. We're sort of moving towards the end. What last words of wisdom would you like to share with us about the whole topic?
1: My mo- the, the main words of wisdom would be that children are never just one thing. Um, and trying to label children doesn't really help look at what the children's needs are rather than trying to find a label for them I think there's historically there's been a great move to collect diagnoses and you'll you'll see parents of children say oh yes my child's got and they'll list a whole you know they're autistic and they've got dyslexia dyspraxia and 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 Um, and I think it's much more important that we actually meet the needs of the child. What does that look like to that individual child? Does that child need support with communication? Do they need um, a trusted peer to be able to help them navigate school? What do they actually need rather than what is the diagnosis, the label?
2: I think that's a brilliant way of looking at things. And it's interesting that all three of us as medically trained doctors uh, are advocating that the medical model isn't necessarily the best one. And it's what we're moving to in mental health as well, where we're much more looking at peer support uh, and, and things like emotional well-being podcasts to help people rather than turning to a pill and a psychiatrist. So that's a great message.
0: Absolutely. Kate, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Peter, thank you very much. And everybody, thank you very much for listening. Go well. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Well-Being Podcast. The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tricida, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Holmes Music on behalf of the NHS
1: Somerset Integrated Care Board.